4. Cyanite, cut and polished. This is shit, Cyanite thinks, behind the shield of her pleasant smile. She doesn't let the affront show on her face, however. Nor does she shift even minutely in the chair. Her hands, four fingers ringed respectively in plain bands of carnelian, white opal, gold, and onyx, rest on her knees. They're out of sight below the edge of the desk, from Feldspar's perspective. She could clench them with Feldspar none the wiser. She doesn't. Coral reefs are challenging, you realize. Feldspar, her own hands occupied with a big wooden cup of safe, smiles over its rim. She knows full well what's behind Cyanite's smile. Not like ordinary rock. Coral is porous, flexible. The fine control required to shatter it without triggering a tsunami is difficult to achieve. And Cyan could do it in her sleep. A two-ringer could do this. A grit could do it, though, admittedly, not without substantial collateral damage. She reaches for her own cup of safe, turning the wooden hemisphere in her fingers so that they will not shake, then taking a sip. I appreciate that you have assigned me a mentor, senior. No, you don't. Feldspar smiles, too and sips from her cup of safe, ringed pinky in the air while she does so. It's as if they're having a private contest. Etiquette versus etiquette. Best shit-eating grin take all. If it's any consolation, no one will think less of you. Because everyone knows what this is really about. That doesn't erase the insult, but it does give Cyan a degree of comfort. At least her new... Mentor is a ten-ringer. That, too, is comforting, that they thought so much of her. She'll scrape whatever morsels of self-esteem she can out of this. He recently completed a circuit in the Somid Lats, Feldspar says gently. There's no actual gentleness to the conversation's subject matter. But Cyan appreciates the older woman's effort. Ordinarily, We'd allow him more time to rest before setting him back on the road. But the courtant governor was insistent that we do something about Aaliyah's harbor blockage as soon as possible. You're the one who'll do the work. He's just there to supervise. Getting there should take a month or so if you don't make many detours and travel at an easy pace. And there's no hurry, given that the coral reef isn't exactly a sudden problem. At this... Feldspar looks fleetingly but truly annoyed. The courtant governor of Alia, or possibly Alia's leadership, must have been especially irritating. In the years since Feldspar became her assigned senior, Cyan has never seen the old woman show any expression worse than a brittle smile. They both know the rules. Fulcrum origines. Imperial origins, black jackets, the ones you probably shouldn't kill, whatever people want to call them, must be always polite and professional. Fulcrum origins must project confidence and expertise whenever they are in public. Fulcrum origins must never show anger because it makes the stills nervous. 
except feldspar would never be so improper as to use a slur like the stills. But that is why feldspar is a senior and has been given supervisory responsibilities, while cyanite merely grinds her own edges alone. She'll have to demonstrate more professionalism if she wants feldspar's job. That, and she'll apparently have to do a few other things. When do I meet him? Cyanite asks. She takes a sip of safe, so this question will seem casual. Just a bit of conversation between old friends. Whenever you like, Feldspar shrugs. He has quarters in the seniors' hall. We did send him a briefing and a request that he attend this meeting. Again, she looks mildly irritated. This whole situation must be terrible for her, just terrible. But it's possible he missed the message, since, as I said, he's been recovering from his circuit. Traveling the Lykesh Mountains alone is difficult. Alone? Five ringers and above are no longer required to have a partner or guardian when traveling outside the fulcrum. Feldspar sips from her cup of safe, oblivious to cyanide shock. At that point, we are judged stable enough in our mastery of orogeny to be granted a modicum of autonomy. Five rings. She has four. It's bullshit that this has anything to do with orogenic mastery. If a guardian has doubts about an origin's willingness to follow the rules, that origin doesn't make it to the first ring, let alone the fifth. But... So, it'll be just him and me. Yes, we've found that arrangement to be most effective in circumstances like this. Of course, Feldspar continues. You'll find him in shaped prominence. That's the complex of buildings that houses most of the fulcrum's complement of seniors. Main tower, top floor. There are no set-aside quarters for the most senior origins, because there are so few. He is our only ten ringer at present, but we could at least spare him a bit of extra space up there. Thank you, Sion says, turning her cup again. I'll go see him after this. Feldspar pauses for a long moment, her face going even more pleasantly unreadable than usual. And that is Cyanite's warning. Then Feldspar says, as a ten ringer, he has the right to refuse any mission short of a declared emergency. You should know that. Wait. Cyan's fingers stop turning the cup, and her eyes flick up to meet those of the older woman. Is Feld saying what it sounds like she's saying? Can't be. Cyan narrows her eyes, no longer bothering to conceal her suspicion. And yet, Feld's spar has given her a way out. Why? Feldspar smiles thinly. I have six children. Ah. Nothing more to be said, then. Cyan takes another sip, trying not to grimace at the chalky grit near the bottom of the cup. Safe is nutritious, but it's not a drink anyone enjoys. It's made from a plant milk that changes color in the presence of any contaminant, even spit. It's served to guests and at meetings because, well, it's safe. A polite gesture that says, 
I'm not poisoning you, at least not right now. After that, Cyan takes her leave of Feldspar, then heads out of Maine, the administrative building. Maine sits amid a cluster of smaller buildings at the edge of the sprawling, half-wild expanse that comprises the Ring Garden. The garden is acres wide and runs in a broad strip around the fulcrum for several miles. It's just that huge, the fulcrum, a city in itself nestled within the greater body of Eumenes, like, well, Cyanite would have continued the thought with, like a child in a woman's belly. But that comparison seems especially grotesque today. She nods to her fellow juniors in passing as she recognizes them. Some of them are just standing or sitting around in knots and talking, while others lounge on patches of grass or flowers and read or flirt or sleep. Life for the ringed is easy, except during missions beyond the fulcrum's walls, which are brief and infrequent. A handful of grits tromp through along the wending cobbled path, all in a neat line overseen by juniors who volunteered as instructors, but grits aren't permitted to enjoy the garden yet. That is a privilege reserved only for those who've passed their first ring test and been approved for initiation by the guardians. And as if the thought of guardians summons them, science spies a few burgundy-uniformed figures standing in a knot near one of the ring's many ponds. There's another guardian on the other side of the pond, lounging in an alcove surrounded by rose bushes, appearing to listen politely while a young junior sings to a small seated audience nearby. Perhaps the guardian is just listening politely. Sometimes they do that. Sometimes they need to relax, too. Cyan notes this guardian's gaze, lingering on one of the audience members in particular, however. A thin, white youth who doesn't seem to be paying much attention to the singer. He's looking at his hands instead, which are folded in his lap. There's a bandage around two of his fingers, holding them together and straight. Cyan moves on. She stops first at Curving Shield, one of the many clusters of buildings that house the hundreds of junior orogens. Her roommates aren't home to see her fetch a few necessary items from her chest, for which she is painfully grateful. They'll hear about her assignment soon enough through the rumor mill. Then she heads out again, eventually reaching shaped prominence. The tower is one of the older buildings of the fulcrum complex, built low and wide of heavy white marble blocks and stolid angles atypical of the wilder, fanciful architecture of Eumenes. The big double doors open in a wide, graceful foyer, its walls and floor embossed with scenes from Sanzed history. She keeps her pace unhurried, nodding to the seniors she sees whether she recognizes them or not. She does want Feldspar's job, after all, and taking the wide stairways gradually, pausing now and again to appreciate the artfully arranged patterns of light and shadow cast by the narrow windows. She's not sure what makes the pattern so special, actually. She's not sure what makes the pattern so special, actually. But everyone says they're stunning works of art, so she needs to be seen appreciating. On the topmost floor, 
where the plush, hall-length rug is overlaid by a herringbone pattern of sunlight, she stops to catch her breath and appreciates something genuinely. Silence. Solitude. There's no one moving in this corridor, not even low-level juniors on cleaning or errand duty. She's heard the rumors, and now she knows they're true. The Ten Ringer has the whole floor to himself. This, then, is the true reward for excellence, privacy, and choice. After closing her eyes for a moment in aching want, Cyan heads down the hall until she reaches the only door with a mat in front of it. In that moment, though, she hesitates. She knows nothing about this man. He's earned the highest rank that exists within their order, which means no one really cares what he does anymore, so long as he keeps any embarrassing behaviors private. And he's a man who has been powerless most of his life, only lately granted autonomy and privilege over others. No one will demote him for anything so trivial as perversion or abuse. Not if his victim is just another origin. There's no point to this. She doesn't have a choice. With a sigh, Cyanite knocks. And because she isn't expecting a person so much as a trial to be endured, she's actually surprised when an annoyed voice snaps from within. What? She's still wondering how to reply to that when footsteps slap against stone, briskly annoyed even in their sound, and the door whisks open. The man who stands there glaring at her is wearing a rumpled robe, one side of his hair flattened, fabric lines painting a haphazard map over his cheek. He's younger than she expected, not young, almost twice her age, at least 40. But she'd thought, well, she's met so many six and seven ringers in their sixth and seventh decades that she'd expected a ten ringer to be ancient and calmer, dignified, more self-possessed, something. He's not even wearing his rings, though she can see a faint, paler stripe on some of his fingers in between his angry gesticulations. What? In the name of every two-minute earth jerk? When Cyan just stares at him, he lapses into another tongue, something she's never heard before, though the sound of it is vaguely coaster and distinctly pissed. Then he rubs a hand over his hair, and Cyan almost laughs. His hair is dense, tight-curled stuff, the kind of hair that needs to be shaped if it's to look stylish, and what he's doing just messes it up more. I told Feldspar, he says, returning to perfectly fluent Sanzet, and plainly struggling for patience, and those other cackling meddlers on the senior advisory board to leave me alone. I just got off the circuit. I haven't had two hours to myself in the last year that weren't shared with a horse or a stranger. And if you're here to give me more orders, I'm going to ice you where you stand. She's pretty sure this is hyperbole. It's the kind of hyperbole he shouldn't use. Fulcrum origins just don't joke about certain things. It's one of the unspoken rules, but maybe a ten-ringer is beyond such things. Not orders exactly, she manages, and his face twists. Then I don't want to hear whatever you're here to tell me. Go the rust away. 
and he starts to close the door in her face. She can't believe it at first. What kind of, really? It is indignity on top of indignity. Bad enough to have to do this in the first place, but to be disrespected in the process? She jams a foot in the door's path before it can build up much momentum and leans in to say, I'm cyanite. Doesn't mean anything to him. She can see this by his now furious glare. He inhales to start shouting. She has no idea what, but she doesn't want to hear it. And before he can, she snaps, I'm here to fuck you, Earth Burnet. Is that worth disturbing your beauty rest? Part of her is appalled at her own language and her own anger. The rest of her is satisfied because that shuts him right the rust up. He lets her in. Now it's awkward. Cyan sits at the small table in his suite, a suite. He's got a whole suite of furnished rooms to himself and watches while he fidgets. He's sitting on one of the room's couches, pretty much perched on its edge. The far edge, she notes, as if he fears to sit too close to her. I didn't think it would start again this soon, he says, looking at his hands, which are laced together before him. I mean, they always tell me there's a need, but that's, I didn't, he sighs. Then this isn't the first time for you, Cyanite says. He only earned the right to refuse with his tenth ring. No, no, but he takes a deep breath. I didn't always know. Didn't know what, he grimaces. With the first few women... I thought they were interested. You. Then she gets it. The deniability is always there, of course. Even Feldspar never came right out and said, your assignment is to produce a child within a year with this man. That lack of acknowledgement is supposed to make it easier somehow. She's never seen the point. Why pretend the situation is anything other than what it is? But for him, she realizes, it wasn't pretending. Which astounds her, because come on, how naive can you be? He glances at her, and her expression grows pained. Yes, I know. She shakes her head. I see. It doesn't matter. This isn't about his intelligence. She stands up and unbuckles the belt of her uniform. He stares, just like that. I, I don't even know you. You don't need to. I don't like you. The feeling is mutual, but Cyan refrains from pointing out the obvious. I finished menstruating a week ago. This is a good time. If you'd rather, you can just lie still and let me take care of things. She's not extraordinarily experienced, but it's not plate tectonics. She gets her uniform jacket off, then pulls something out of the pocket to show him. A bottle of lubricant, still mostly full. He looks dimly horrified. In fact, it's probably better if you don't move. This will be awkward enough as it is. He stands up too, actually backing away. The look of agitation on his face is, well, it's not funny, not really. But... Cyanite cannot help feeling a modicum of relief at his reaction. No, not just relief. He 
is the weak one here, despite his ten rings. She's the one who has to carry a child she doesn't want, which might kill her, and even if it doesn't, will change her body forever, if not her life. But here and now, at least, she is the one with all the power. It makes this, well, not right, but better somehow, that she's the one in control. We don't have to do this, he blurts. I can refuse, he grimaces. I know you can't, but I can. So don't refuse, she says, scowling. What? Why not? You said it, I have to do this, you don't. If not you, it will be someone else. Six children Feldspar had. But Feldspar was never a particularly promising origin. Cyanite is. If Cyan isn't careful, if she pisses off the wrong people, if she lets herself get labeled difficult, they will kill her career and assign her permanently to the fulcrum leaving her nothing to do but lie on her back and turn men's grunting and farting into babies. She'll be lucky to have only six, if that's how things turn out. He's staring as if he doesn't understand, even though she knows he does. She says, I want this over with. Then he surprises her. She's expecting more stammering and protests. Instead, his hand clenches at his side. He looks away, a muscle working in his jaw. He still looks ridiculous in that robe with his hair askew, but the look on his face, he might as well have been ordered to submit himself to torture. She knows she's no looker, at least not by equatorial standards. Too much mid-ladder mongrel in her. But then, he's obviously not well-bred either. That hair and skin so black it's almost blue, and he's small. Her height, that is, which is tall for either women or men, but he's lean, not at all broad or intimidating. If his ancestors include any Sanzeds, they're far back and they gave him nothing of their physical superiority. Over with, he mutters, right. The muscle in his jaw is practically jumping up and down. He's grinding his teeth so hard. And, whoa, he's not looking at her. And suddenly she's glad, because that's hate in his face. She's seen it before in other origins. Rust, she's felt it herself when she has the luxury of solitude and unfettered honesty. But she's never let it show like that. Then he looks up at her, and she tries not to flinch. You weren't born here, he says, cold now. Belatedly, she realizes it's a question. No, she doesn't like being the one on the receiving end of the questions, were you? Oh, yes, I was bred to order. He smiles, and it's strange seeing a smile layered over all that hate. Not even as haphazardly as our child will be. I'm the product of two of the fulcrum's oldest and most promising lineages, or so I'm told. I had a guardian practically from birth. He shoves his hands into the pockets of his rumpled robe. You're a feral. This comes out of nowhere. Cyan actually spends a second wondering if this is some new way of saying raga, and then realizing what he really means. Oh, that is just the limit. Look, I don't care how many rings you wear. 
That's what they call you, I mean. He smiles again, and his bitterness so resonates with her own that she falls silent in confusion. If you didn't know, ferals, the ones from outside, often don't know or care. But when an origin is born from parents who weren't, from a family line that's never shown the curse before, that's how they think of you. A wild mutt to my domesticated purebred. An accident to my plan. He shakes his head. It makes his voice shake. What it actually means is that they couldn't predict you. You're the proof that they'll never understand, orogeny. It's not science, it's something else. And they'll never control us. <laughs> not really. Not completely. Sion isn't sure what to say. She didn't know about the feral thing, about being different somehow. Though now that she thinks about it, most of the other origins she knows were fulcrum-bred. And yeah, she's noticed how they look at her. She just thought that was because they were equatorials and she was from the nomad lats, or because she got her first ring before they did. And yet, now that he said this, is being feral a bad thing? It must be. If the problem is that ferals are not predictable, well, origins have to prove themselves reliable. The fulcrum has a reputation to maintain that's part of this. So is the training and the uniform and the endless rules they must follow. But the breeding is part of it too, or why is she here? It's somehow flattering to think that despite her feral status, they actually want something of her, infused into their breeding lines. Then she wonders why a part of her is trying to find value in degradation. She's so lost in thought that he surprises her when he makes a weary sound of capitulation. You're right, he says tersely. All business now because, well, there was really only one way this could end. And staying businesslike will allow both of them to maintain some semblance of dignity. Sorry, you're ugh, rusting earth. Yeah, let's just get this done. So they go into his bedroom and he strips and lies down and tries for a while to work himself up to it, which doesn't go well. The hazard of having to do this with an older man, Sion decides, though really, it's probably more the fact that sex doesn't usually go well when you don't feel like having it. She keeps her expression neutral as she sits beside him and brushes his hands out of the way. He looks embarrassed. And she curses because if he gets self-conscious about it, this will take all day. He comes around when she takes over, though, perhaps because he can shut his eyes and imagine that her hands belong to whoever he wants. So then she grits her teeth and straddles him and rides until her thighs ache and her breasts grow sore from bouncing. The lube only helps a little. He doesn't feel as good as a dildo or her fingers. Still, his fantasies must be sufficient because after a while, he makes a strained sort of whimper and then it's done. She's pulling on her boots when he sighs and sits up and looks at her so bleakly that she feels vaguely ashamed of what she's done to him. What did you say your name was? He asks. Cyanite. That the name your parents gave you. When she glares back at him, 
his lips twitch in something less than a smile. Sorry, just jealous. Jealous? Fulcrum bread, remember? I've only ever had the one name. Oh, he hesitates. This is apparently hard for him. You, uh, you can call me. She cuts him off because she knows his name already. And anyway, she doesn't intend to call him anything but you, which should be enough to distinguish him from the horses. Feldspar says we're to leave Feralia tomorrow. She gets her second boot on and stands to kick the heel into place. Another mission already? He sighs. Oh, I should have known. Yes, he should have. You're mentoring me and helping me clear some coral out of a harbor. Right. He knows it's a bullshit mission, too. There's only one reason they'd send him along for something like this. They gave me your briefing dossier yesterday. Guess I'll finally read it. Meet at the stable yard at noon? You're the ten ringer. He rubs his face with both hands. She feels a little bad, but only a little. Fine, he says, all business again. Noon it is. So she heads out, sore and annoyed that she smells faintly like him, and tired. Probably it's just stress that's wearing her out. The idea of a month on the road with a man she cannot stand, doing things she doesn't want to do, on behalf of people she increasingly despises. But this is what it means to be civilized, doing what her betters say she should for the ostensible good of all. And it's not like she gains no benefit from this. A year or so of discomfort, a baby she doesn't have to bother raising because it will be turned over to the lower creche as soon as it's born, and a high-profile mission completed under the mentorship of a powerful senior. With the experience and boost to her reputation, she'll be that much closer to her fifth ring. That means her own apartment, no more roommates. Better missions, longer leave, more say in her own life. That's worth it. Earth fire, yes, it's worth it. She tells herself this all the way back to her room. Then she packs to leave, tidies up so she'll come home to order and neatness and takes a shower, methodically scrubbing every bit of flesh she can reach until her skin burns. Tell them they can be great someday like us. Tell them they belong among us no matter how we treat them. Tell them they must earn the respect which everyone else receives by default. Tell them there is a standard for acceptance. That standard is simply perfection. Kill those who scoff at these contradictions, and tell the rest that the dead deserved annihilation for their weakness and doubt. Then they'll break themselves, trying for what they'll never achieve. Earl Set, 23rd Emperor of the Sanzed Equatorial Affiliation, in the 13th year of the Season of Teeth. Comment recorded at a party, shortly before the founding of the Fulcrum. Five. You are not alone. Night has fallen, and you sit in the lee of a hill in the dark. You're so tired. Takes a lot out of you, 
killing so many people. Worse, because you didn't do nearly as much as you could have done once you got all worked up. Orogeny is a strange equation. Take movement and warmth and life from your surroundings, amplify it by some indefinable process of concentration or catalysis or semi-predictable chance, push movement and warmth and death from the earth. Power in, power out. To keep the power in, though, to not turn the valley's aquifer into a geyser or shatter the ground into rubble takes an effort that makes your teeth and the backs of your eyes ache. You walked a long time to try to burn off some of what you took in, but it still brims under your skin, even as your body grows weary and your feet hurt. You are a weapon meant to move mountains. A mere walk can't take that out of you. Still, you walked until darkness fell, and then you walked some more. And now you're here, huddled and alone at the edge of an old fallow field. You're afraid to start a fire, even though it's getting cool. Without a fire, you can't see much, but also nothing can see you. A woman alone, with a full pack, and only a knife to defend herself. You're not helpless. But an attacker wouldn't know that till it was too late. And you'd rather not kill anyone else today. In the distance, you can see the dark arc of a high road, rising above the plains like a taunt. High roads usually have electric lanterns, courtesy of Sansa, but you're not surprised this one's dark. Even if the shake from the north hadn't occurred, seasonal standard procedure is to shut down all non-essential hydro and geo. It's too far to be worth the detour anyway. You're wearing a jacket, and there's nothing to fear in the field but mice. Sleeping without a fire won't kill you. You can see relatively well anyway, despite the lack of fire or lanterns. Rippling bands of clouds like hoed rows in the garden you once kept have covered the sky above. They're easy to see because something to the north has underlit the clouds in bands of red glow and shadow. When you stare that way, there's an uneven line of mountains against the northern horizon and the flicker of a distant bluish-gray obelisk where its lower tip peeks through a knot of clouds. But these things tell you nothing. Closer by, there's a flitter of what might be a colony of bats out feeding. Late for bats, but all things change during a season, the stone lore warns. All living things do what they must to prepare and survive. The source of the glow is beyond the mountains, as if the setting sun went the wrong way and got stuck there. You know what's causing this glow. It must be an awesome thing to see up close, that great terrible rent spewing fire into the sky, except you don't ever want to see it. And you won't, because you're heading south. Even if Jija hadn't started out going in that direction, he would surely have turned south after the shake from the north passed through. That's the only sane way to go. Of course, a man who would beat his own child to death might not still fit the label of sane. And a woman who found that child and stopped thinking for three days? <laughs> not you either. Nothing to do but follow your crazy, though. You've eaten something from your pack. 
Cash bread smeared with salty acaba paste from the jar you stuffed into it a lifetime and a family ago. Acaba keeps well after it's opened, but not forever, and now that you've opened it, you'll have to eat it for the next few meals until it's gone. That's okay, because you like it. You've drunk water from the canteen that you filled a few miles back at a roadhouse's well pump. There'd been people there, several dozen, some of them camping around the roadhouse, and some of them just stopping there briefly. All of them had the look you're starting to identify as slow-building panic. Because everyone's finally begun to realize what the shake and the red glow and the clouded sky all mean, and to be outside of a community's gates at a time like this is, in the long run, a death sentence. Except for a handful who are willing to become brutal enough or depraved enough to do what they must. Even those only have a chance at survival. None of the people at the roadhouse wanted to believe they had that in them. You saw that as you looked around, assessing faces and clothes and bodies and threats. None of them looked like survival fetishists or would-be warlords. What you saw at that roadhouse were ordinary people, some still caked in filth after digging themselves out of mudslides or collapsed buildings, some still bleeding from wounds haphazardly bandaged or untreated entirely. Travelers caught away from home. Survivors whose homes no longer existed. You saw an old man still wearing a sleeping gown half ragged and dusty on one side, sitting with a youth clad in only a long shirt and smears of blood, both of them hollow-eyed with grief. You saw two women holding each other, rocking in an effort at comfort. You saw a man your own age with the look of a strong back, who gazed steadily at his big, thick-fingered hands, and perhaps wondered if he was hale enough, young enough, to earn a place somewhere. These are the stories the Stone Lord prepared you for, tragic as they are. There's nothing in Stone Lore about husbands killing children. You're leaning on an old post that someone jammed up against the hill, Maybe the remnants of a fence that ended here, drifting off with your hands tucked into your jacket pockets and your knees drawn up. And then, slowly, you become aware that something has changed. There's no sound to alert you, other than the wind and the small prickles and rustles of the grass. No smell transcends the faint sulfur scent that you've already gotten used to. But there's something, something else. Out there, someone else. Your eyes snap open, and half your mind falls into the earth ready to kill. The rest of your mind freezes, because a few feet away, sitting cross-legged on the grass and looking at you, is a little boy. You don't realize what he is at first. It's dark, he's dark. You wonder if he's from an eastern coastal calm. But his hair moves a little when the wind soughs again, and you can tell that some of it's straight as the grass around you. West coaster, then. The rest of it seems stuck down with hair pomade or something. No, you're a mother. It's dirt. He's covered in dirt. Bigger than Uche, not quite as big as Nasun, so 
maybe six or seven years old. You actually aren't sure he's a he. Confirmation of that will come later. For now, you make a judgment call. He sits in a hunched way that would look odd in an adult and is perfectly normal for a child who hasn't been told to sit up straight. You stare at him for a moment. He stares back at you. You can see the pale glisten of his eyes. Hello, he says. A boy's voice, high and bright. Good call. Hello, you say at last. There are horror tales that start this way, with bands of feral, calmless children who turn out to be cannibals. Bit early for that sort of thing, though, the season having just started. Where did you come from? He shrugs, unknowing, maybe uncaring. What's your name? I'm Hoa. It's a small, strange name, but the world is a big, strange place. Stranger, though, that he gives only one name. He's young enough that he might not have a calm name yet, but he had to have inherited his father's use cast. Just Hoa? Mm-hmm. He nods and twists aside and sets down some kind of parcel, patting it as if to make sure it's safe. Can I sleep here? You look around and sess around and listen. Nothing moving but the grass, no one around but the boy. Doesn't explain how he approached you in total silence, but then he's small and you know from experience that small children can be very quiet if they want to be. Usually that means they're up to something, though. Who else are you with, Hoa? Nobody. It's too dim for him to see your eyes narrow, but somehow he reacts to this anyway, leaning forward. Really, it's just me. I saw some other people by the road, but I didn't like them. I hid from them. A pause. I like you. Lovely. Sighing. You tuck your hands back into your pockets and draw yourself out of earth readiness. The boy relaxes a little, that much you can see, and starts to lie down on the bare earth. Wait, you say, and reach for your pack. Then you toss him the bedroll. He catches it and looks confused for a few moments, then figures it out. Happily, he rolls it out, then curls up on top of it like a cat. You don't care enough to correct him. Maybe he's lying. Maybe he is a threat. You'll make him leave in the morning because you don't need a child tagging along. He'll slow you down. And someone must be looking for him. Some mother somewhere whose child is not dead. For tonight, however, you can manage to be human for a little while. So you lean back against the post and close your eyes to sleep. The ash begins to fall in the morning. They are an arcane thing, you understand. An alchemical thing. Like orogeny. If orogeny could manipulate the infinitesimal structure of matter itself rather than mountains. Obviously, they possess some sort of kinship with humanity, which they choose to acknowledge in the statue-like shape we most often see. But it follows that they can take other shapes. We would never know. 
Umbul Innovator Alia, a treatise on sentient non-humans, Sixth University, 2323 Imperial, Year Two, Acid Season.